1958, there was this magazine uh, called The Christian Century. It's, it's in Chicago. It, it published a critique, uh, kind of an op-ed of what, a figure who's, who I really like, a, a guy by the name of C.S. Lewis. You guys heard of C.S. Lewis? Great, great author. And so... Um, um, the critique was written by a, name, a man by the name of Norman uh, Pittenger. And, and the basics of the critique of C.S. Lewis said something like this. It was, it was, a, it was a critique that C.S. Lewis didn't care much for the Sermon on the Mount. And so there's a whole article about can you believe that C.S. Lewis doesn't like the Sermon on the Mount. And uh, that's, that's what we've been studying. That's what we're going to study today. What's, what's interesting is, is C.S. Lewis's response to this critique. He, he wrote back to the, uh, the Christian century uh, a few weeks later with his response, and, and he says something like this. Uh, As to caring for the Sermon on the Mount, if caring here means liking or enjoying, I suppose no one really cares for it. Who can like being knocked flat on his face by a sledgehammer? Th- that's his point. I can hardly imagine a more deadly spiritual condition than that of a man who can read the Sermon on the Mount with tranquil pleasure. The idea is that the Sermon on the Mount, if we read it the right way, if you understand it the right way, it's akin to being hit in the face with a sledgehammer, which is great imagery because it exposes us, it humiliates us, it falls on us with devastating blows. And um, some of us hear it in such a way that we're, we're able to, to maintain like a thankful heart. Like we're thankful for the sledgehammer. We need it. Uh, and, and, and that reminds me of another quick story, and then I promise we'll get to the text. There, there, one of the classic preachers, a guy by the name of Alexander White, as a young boy, he, uh, he fell and broke his arm. And I did similarly. I've got this big scar that goes from here to here from when I was playing high school football. And, and it had to be rebuilt. Uh, they had to go in there and do surgery and, and put in plates and screws. And so today it only hurts when, it, you know, when, when the barometric pressure changes and, and it rains or something. I can reach down there and feel it's kind of swollen a little bit. But, but this young boy, he, he falls, he breaks his arm. It, it's, it's beyond the, before the years where they have this kind of surgical methods. And, and so it would probably need to be amputated. It, it, and it would have if it weren't for a, a lady next door who was a nurse and, and really nursed him to, to health for, for, for several months. I don't know exactly what she did. He says it was a painful recovery. And that when he would cry out in pain, uh, the, the neighbor lady would always say to him, good, good, good. I like the pain. I like the pain. It, it means you don't have nerve damage. It means you're healing. And that became, you know, as this guy becomes a popular preacher, he becomes a famous preacher. This was one of his most popular refrains. He would say over and over again, he would say, good, good. I like the pain. I like the pain. It was in the middle of the sermon. And so it reminded me of that, that whole thought of the sledgehammer to the, to the face and how we think about the Sermon on the Mount. It's painful, and it does its work, and, and we like the pain. So today as we continue our work on the Sermon of, on the Mount, um, it's going to be painful. And the trick is to recognize that this is a good pain. Uh, Jesus is explaining to his disciples how to live as citizens in the kingdom of heaven. And he says in order to do so, our righteousness must exceed the righteousness of, of the scribes and the Pharisees. And then Jesus gives us examples of righteous living. And, and it's kind of one sledgehammer after the other. And we looked at three of those last week. His first example is this. You've heard it said you shall not murder. Remember this one? 
But I say to you that if you're angry with or you insult your brother, you are liable to the fires of hell. His second example from last week was, uh, you've heard it said you shall not commit adultery, but if you look at a woman with lust in your heart, then you've already committed adultery. That was last week. And, and the third blow that, that Jesus delivered from last week is to those who took divorce lightly. Uh, Jesus said, if you think it's fine to divorce for whatever reason you like and remarry, and in doing so satisfy the law of God, that's not the case. What Jesus really says is, whoever divorces his wife, except on the grounds of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. And for some of you, you hear this, and it's a painful teaching. And that's exactly the point. And I'll explain that to you in a moment. In the meantime, uh, would you like to hear a few more of these sledgehammer blows this morning? That's what we're going to do. We're going to continue reading the Sermon on the Mount. And we're going to continue to be exposed to the teachings of Jesus. So, so stand with me in reverence of God's holy word. And let's read together from Matthew 5, verses 33 through 48. Before we do, let's, we'll take a moment and, and go to the Lord in prayer. Join me. Uh, Father, it is not always fun to hear that we are sinners. It's not always fun to hear that, that the decisions we've made in life, or the, the freedoms that we've exercised have been contrary to your will. But your word is perfect. And we submit ourselves to it. We call out to Christ Jesus to be our righteousness where we fail. So let your word and your law do its work in us today. We pray this in Christ's name, and the church said, amen. All right, friends, let's read beginning in verse 33. Again, you've heard it, that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is the footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. If anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. You've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven for... He makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good, and he sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Church, the grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our Lord will stand forever. And this is the word of our Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. 
three real main topics that we find in the blows of today, these painful blows that are going to be delivered, are truth, revenge, and the love of our enemies. So let's start with the issue of, of truth, and we begin in verse 33. We'll read it together. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. We need to understand that in the Old Testament, vows were encouraged. Okay? Look at Deuteronomy 10.20. You're going to see uh, that, that vowing and taking oaths is encouraged. Deuteronomy 10.20 says this, You shall fear the Lord your God, you shall serve him and hold fast to him, and by his name you shall swear. Vows are encouraged. Swearing by, by God's name is encouraged here. Uh, the idea is that when, when a Jew made a vow or when they took a sacred oath, they would swear it upon what? Upon the name of God. That's, it seems to be like that's what he's getting around. He's, I don't want you to swear on anything else. It's, it's I want you to, to swear on the name of God. J Jeremiah at one point is, the prophet is discussing all these nations that are around Israel. And, and, and he, he's talking about whether or not God's going to be gracious to them. And, and this is what he says about these wicked nations. Look at Jeremiah 12, 16. He says this, and it shall come to pass if they will diligently learn the ways of my people to swear by my name. You see that? As the Lord lives, even as they taught my people to swear by Baal. See, he doesn't want that. You see, these other nations have been teaching the people to swear by Baal. And, and they shall be built up in the midst of my people. There was a cultural battle going on over whose name was going to be used for oath. The prophet says, God will be gracious to the nations if they will learn the ways of God's people, specifically to swear by the name of the Lord. But once someone swore an oath by God's name, it was serious business. The, 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 the vows that were taken by God's name were serious. Look one more time, one more scripture with me from the Old Testament. Deuteronomy 23, 21, he says this. If you make... A vow to the Lord your God. You shall not delay in fulfilling it. For the Lord your God will surely require it of you, and you will be guilty of sin. So, so serious business when you make a vow in, in the name of the Lord. Which is why one of the reasons why divorce is such a big deal, because we stand together and we take vows in the name of the Lord. So, so fast forward with me to Jesus' day. All right, move, move to, 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 to Jesus' day. The idea of oaths and taking oaths had gotten convoluted. It, 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 it had gotten really weird. Rabbis of the day, the, the, the modern Jewish teachers, were teaching that, that oaths were not binding if they did not include the name of God. Right? So, so as long as you didn't say, in the name of God, the true God of Israel, and, and use, uh, you know, Yeshua or whatever it was, as long as you didn't, didn't make a vow in God's name, you could, you could make a vow and you could break it. And uh, I think we've discussed the Mishnah in the past. It's a, it's a set of Jewish writings compiled to, to help them follow the law. And, and the, the Mishnah actually devoted an entire chapter to discussing when oaths were binding and when oaths weren't binding. In other words, when you, when you could lie and when you couldn't lie. And the basic idea was that as, as long as you don't swear by God's name, it was fine to break your oath. 
And so the game that, that began to, to be played among Jews was, was to try to get as close as possible to the name of God and swear on things that were really close to God's name but not really God's name so that you could trick people into thinking that the oath that you had taken was a real oath, okay? And so you would swear, I swear by Jerusalem. I, I swear by Abraham's beard. I swear by my forefathers, right? You would, you would swear by all these things. You wanted to leave the possibility to break the oath, but you also wanted the other person to believe uh, that, that you had actually given a true oath. And, and, uh, and Jesus is going to expose this misuse of God's law. And, and, and Jesus, he's not changing the standards from the Old Testament because Jesus doesn't come to change the Old Testament standards. What he comes to do is to clarify them and to explain them. So look at verses 34 through 36. This is what Jesus says. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Here, here's the logic that Jesus gives here. He, he's saying that God is sovereign over, over all these things. Uh, everything in creation belongs to the Lord. So whatever you choose to swear by, at some point, that thing reflects the glory of God. And so anytime you make an oath and then you go back and break that oath, no matter what you swore upon, you're guilty of sin. And, and this is what Jesus meant in, in part when he's telling people that your, your righteousness must be greater than the Pharisees is that he's telling his disciples, like, like the, the Pharisees will, will make these false vows. You can't do that. You have to be in my kingdom. You have to be truth tellers. Your word has to mean something because I'm about to entrust you with the gospel. And if people don't, if people don't trust that you're truth tellers, why are they going to trust anything you say? So Jesus says in verse 37, let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. And so um, we as, as Christians, as, as followers of Jesus, have to examine ourselves by this standard. Do we tell lies? Do you tell lies? Only little ones, I'm sure, right? Only little white lies. You only do it to protect people's feelings, probably, or to stay out of trouble, or to keep your wife happy, or to impress your friends. But the truth is, you're a liar before the Lord. And, and that's the sledgehammer to the face and the question I ask for you is, do you like the pain this morning? You're a liar. The next blow is found in our concept of revenge, right? Verse 38, uh, let's read it together. You have heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. And uh, I don't know if you've, you, you've heard this before. It's, it's probably the oldest law ever recorded in, in kind of human culture. It's called the Lex Talionis. And um, some form of this law exists in most cultures, Christian or not, that have a developed judicial system. At first glance, you, you can look at an eye for an eye, and it might seem to you that that kind of that notion is, it might seem a little savage, right? But, but the real purpose of Lex Talionis or an eye for an eye was to limit vengeance 
Okay, it wasn't to, to justify savagery, but it was to limit vengeance because vengeance tends to escalate. Let me, let me show you how. Like, like if you insult my wife, therefore I punch you in the face and you come back after the fact and shoot me in the back and my children avenge me by killing your entire family, that seems extreme, right? But read the newspaper. That's exactly how it works. So vengeance is, is limited. Now, now stay with me. Um, the Jews lived in a civilized culture. It, it, wasn't, um, it wasn't really barbaric as, as much as we could probably think of some cultures that were. The Jews had, had courts, and they had judges, and they had laws. And so um, in that context, an eye for an eye was not really about allowing you to assault your neighbor and get even. Right? It wasn't saying that, that if, if your neighbor takes your eye, you're allowed to then go and take their eye. Um, maybe in earlier cultures or in earlier times, but in societies that have developed legal structures, if, if you cut out my eye and then I turn around and cut out your eye, we're both going to jail. If you kill my father, I'm not allowed to kill you because I'm not the one whom in our culture has been put in the place to execute justice. And the same, the same was really true at this time in Israel. An eye for an eye is a, it's a legal idea for the courts primarily. It's about how courts give out justice. It, it, it says the punishment should fit the crime. If someone commits injustice to you, you can ask the court for justice, or, or at least that's the idea, right? Uh, what is the injustice that Jesus describes here? Well, read with me. He's, verse 39 says this. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other cheek also. Now, if, if you and I are standing face to face, and for me to slap you as a right-handed man on the right cheek, one of two things has to happen. Either I have to hit you like this, or, which is much more probable that Jesus is describing, I have to reach back and, and backhand you. Like, it's, it's a slap from, from the back of my hands. And um, I think that some of you know that, that in, in many cultures, a slap from the back of the hands delivers a sort of insult with it, right? It's, it's, it's a blow that you give to someone who is beneath you. It's a blow that you give to someone who is insignificant. And the truth is... Um, you could take someone to court for that kind of assault in Jesus' day as well as ours. But in the radical teaching of Jesus here, not only do you not hit them back, but you don't seek justice. You're not worried about making yourself whole. You're worried about the other person and, and the other person's well-being, which is really hard to do when, when they strike you with the back of their hand in such an insulting way, right? And, and, and no doubt some of you say, well, forget that. We're throwing hands, right? If someone gives me the back of the hand, we're going to war. We're about to scrap. Or at least, at least that guy is going to pay for what he did. However, Jesus is describing kingdom living. And, and listen, kingdom living is hard. It takes a lot of strength to let someone insult you, to slap you with the back of their hand and dismiss you 
and to treat you like you're less than them and then not to seek revenge and, to, and, and instead to truly care about them, about what's best for them and, and to be empathetic about all that's broken inside of them. And at the end of the day, Jesus' teaching about denying yourself justice, this whole idea is why C.S. Lewis says that no one really enjoys the Sermon on the Mount. We might love it. We might know that it's, it's needed. We might know that it's, it's perfectly a necessity for us, but it's like a sledgehammer to the face. Because you don't get to demand justice. You're called to love others instead. You're going to see this theme continue. Verse 40. Read this with me. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let them have your cloak as well. Okay, what you need to understand is that it was, it was illegal in these days. It was unjust and illegal to take someone's cloak. You couldn't do it. The Jewish legal system saw that the cloak, it was kind of a long coat that went all the way down. You know, it was a covering. They saw that it was, it was necessary. And to take away someone's coat from them, if, if you had it, if you were to sue them and take that from them, it would be akin to a human rights violation. You don't leave a man without his cloak. It's their protection against the elements. It's what they cover up with at night when they go to sleep. And it, like the law would let you take almost anything else, um, but you can't garnish or take their cloak. But Jesus says to his followers, if your brother sues you and he takes your tunic, he takes your, your undershirt, your, you know, he takes this, then you give him your cloak as well. What is the point that Jesus is making? It's total abandonment of seeking justice for yourself. You have to understand what he's saying. You've heard it said, an eye for an eye. In other words, you've heard it said, justice. But I say to you, self-denial. During the Roman occupation, like when the Romans were over, you know, in control of Israel, there was a law that was on the books, and the law allowed Roman officials to come up beside you and ask you to carry any burden for, for up to a mile. Once again, this has this legal, you feel the legal context to it, and, and the question at hand is, what is just? Like, what is just? And, and if you were a Roman, what you would say is, what is just is when I see you and I need help, I can say, here, carry this for a mile. We're going to go down the road here. I, I've got too much to carry. Carry this for a mile. Uh, now, now, if you were a Jew, you, you would think that that's not just. But if you were, if you were a Roman, you would say, I, I can't ask you to carry it too because that becomes unjust. And so for the issue of what is just and what is unjust, um, look at verse 41. This is what Jesus says. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, you know, if you're a Jew and the, and the Roman comes by and does this, go with him two miles. The second mile is beyond the limitations of the law. You're denying yourself even, you're denying yourself even the Roman interpretation of what justice is so that you can love and serve the other person. And so we're asked to kind of apply this to ourselves today. What about us? What about you? Are you seeking revenge? Are you seeking to make someone else pay for what they did? And this happens for us in, in our relationships. It happens for us in our marriages. It happens with our children. People do something. We want to make them pay for it. We want to get our justice. And the painful truth, the, the blow that we absorb this morning from the Sermon on the Mount is this is not the way of the kingdom. Instead, we are to love our enemies. That's what we're told. 
The kingdom of heaven is giving us our charge. Other kingdoms might work differently, but what makes followers of Jesus unique is that we love our enemies. Let's look at verse 43 together. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. I wonder, you know, Jesus is assuming that the Jews had heard that. Like, you know, that there was some context before that they had heard that, that, this, that, that there's a common understanding that you're supposed to uh, love your neighbor but hate your enemy. And I, I, have you ever wondered where that came from? It appears, and to the best of my research, that it comes from a couple places, but primarily from Leviticus 19. 18. So let's look at Leviticus 19.18 here and see, see what it says about loving your enemy or loving your neighbor but hating your enemy. Let's see if we can find that. It says this, you shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people. Okay, that makes sense. But you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There it is. There's loving your neighbor. I am the Lord. Uh, that's what we have there. The context seems to be instructing Jews not to seek vengeance against other Jews. And, and, and we also see the part there where we're to, uh, to love our neighbor, but I don't see the part about hating the enemy. Uh, enemies are kind of implied, I guess you could say, in saying that you have to love your neighbor and, and not take vengeance on your brother, that it's allowing space for you to take vengeance on other people. But it's kind of like that, that same verse, about, or that other verse we did today about not breaking oaths made in God's name. It never said you could break oaths made on other things, but, but we're always looking for loopholes. If the Jews had rightly understood, they would know that God's law has always been to love your enemy. It was to love your enemy before Jesus, okay? Jesus, Jesus didn't come up with the love your enemy thing. And if you don't believe me, look in Exodus. Exodus 23, 4, and 5, right? Read it with me. He's, this is the instruction here of the law. It says, if you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey going astray, you're, you're out and you see their donkey, it's wandered away from them, you shall bring their, their, their donkey or their ox back to him. If you see the donkey of one who hates you lying down under its burden, you shall refrain from leaving him with it. You shall rescue it with him. So, so, so somebody who hates you, they have a donkey, the donkey has wandered off. It was carrying such a heavy load that the donkey's legs had given out. It's laying on the side of the road, just, just waiting on death under a heavy burden. You're not to leave it there, even though that person hates you. You're to, you're to love them. Loving your enemy is not a New Testament idea. It's always been God's standard. Look at verse 44 and see what Jesus says. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Turn the other cheek. We, we had that today. Let them have your cloak. Go the extra mile. Deny yourself justice. Now, love them and pray for them. Do you have enemies? I mean, like, let me be honest. Like, do you have enemies? And, and, and listen, and come on, who are you? I, I don't know who some of y'all think you're fooling. Think harder. Is there anyone who comes to mind when you hear the word? Do you have a nemesis? Is there someone that you're kind of always at odds with? I bet there is. But I had in my mind the church lady. You remember the church lady? 
Sorry, not live. I had in my mind that, like someone from our church who would say, I don't have enemies, Tyson. And I, you know, someone who is above that thinking. And I'm like, you don't get it. You're not, you're not getting what Jesus is saying. Of course you have enemies. Of course you have someone you don't get along with. We as Americans, we, we have national enemies, right? We've been told to hate China, Iran, and Russia. We have political enemies. If you're a conservative... It's probably true that you, you see progressives as your enemy. I, I saw uh, one of my buddies who's a, a conservative pastor had a picture of Joe Biden on his Facebook profile this week, and it said, friends, pray for your president. And underneath it was just this list of people in his congregation, these beloved uh, Christian church ladies saying, I cannot pray for him, I hate him. And it was funny because I was reading this verse and like preparing to preach this. And so I was like, I think something in the Sermon on the Mount says that we're to do this. And that's for some people why they, they, they can't get there. And then when they come to the Sermon on the Mount and it says we should do this, you know what it feels like? A sledgehammer to the face. It's a good pain. And that's the standard of the kingdom. We love our enemies and we pray for them. And the truth is, I don't like that. I don't want to do that. I want to pray against my enemies like the psalmist did. I want people who are against me to fail. And I want them to be embarrassed because of it. That's the truth of the matter. But this is the standard of Jesus. He says that in verse 45, uh, that you should do this, and look at why. why. Why should we do this? Ready? Verse 45, so that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. For he makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends the rain on the just and the unjust. Two things uh, about this. We do this so that we can be called sons of the Father. This is what children of God do. And then he says, uh, I think it's interesting, for he makes the sun to rise on, on the evil and the good. He sends rain on the just and the unjust. Here's the idea. It goes like this. If sons of God seek to act like God, they seek to mimic their Father in heaven, and, and we see that God is, is loving to his enemies. The example that Jesus uses is, is sunshine and rain. God, God could withhold love to his enemies. He, he, could, he could smite them. He could destroy them. But God chooses to love and to make the sun even shine on his enemies and the rain even fall on his enemies. And so his children should behave in the same way. Verse 45, or 46 and 47 says this. For if you love those who love you, what, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? The idea is that our love distinguishes us from the world. The love of our enemies sets us apart. And if you're proud of yourself because you manage to love just your friends and your family, that is not unique of, of believers, of children of God, right? There are plenty of people, hear this, who hate God and yet love their moms. And they, they love their friends. That, that's not unique to kingdom living. What is unique 
is being, a, is, is being able to love your enemies. And I want to love my enemies. I do, but, but I'm constantly battling my flesh. There, there are two natures in me fighting over how I treat my enemies. And when, when I come to this text, it's like a sledgehammer to the face. It's convicting. And I've grown to love, I have, I've grown to love that pain. Because it means that the Spirit is at work within me. And that I don't have some sort of abandonment from the Spirit. But that I still get conviction. Does it convict you this morning? Last verse. Verse 48. You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. The idea of perfection. It drives home the intent of the Sermon on the Mount. Do you you want to be sons of God? Do you want to enter the kingdom of heaven? All you have to have is perfect righteousness. One sin, and you do not qualify. If you break one oath, you do not qualify. If you seek revenge and justice for yourself just one time, if you hate even one enemy, you fall short of the standard. That's the big sledgehammer. Jesus said, love your enemies so that you may be... This is really interesting. Remember, he said, love your enemies so that you may be sons of your heavenly Father. Do you remember this? Our problem is that we've already failed. We haven't loved our enemies. So, so what hope do we have in being sons of God if, if, if we've hated our enemies? Let me tell you the good news of the gospel. John 1.12 says this. Uh, if we have it, we'll put it up there. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. You see, you begin to understand that you become a child of God not because you are worthy, not because you could follow all of the Sermon on the Mount properly, but because you put your faith in God. I hope that you've seen throughout the Sermon on the Mount the constant way that Jesus shows us that perfection is the only way to have a righteousness that we can enter the kingdom of heaven because there were a lot of people who thought they were going to heaven because of their works. And over and over again, he says it's impossible because the standard is perfection. If you have hatred in your heart, you're a murderer. The only way to be a a citizen of the kingdom of heaven is to put your faith in Jesus Christ and find your hope there. And so friends, uh, as we conclude this morning's reading, I invite you to strive to live as become children of God but to rest in the unmerited gift of grace that comes through faith in Jesus. Uh, Can we pray together this morning? Father, thank you for your holy word. Thank you for this sermon of Jesus, this sermon on the mount, which feels to us like a a sledgehammer, and it's full of pain. But the pain uh, is a pain that reveals to us a need And that need is for the righteousness that only Christ has that becomes ours when we submit and are called to turn to Christ in faith. So to all here today who are uh, afraid of, of their own personal salvation, may you be comforted in your faith in Jesus Christ. To those who are trusting in uh, their own righteousness, Lord, would you bring conviction? 
And in all things, would you bring praise and worship and honor and glory to the person of Jesus who lived the life that we could not live and died the death that we should have died. Christ, to you be honored in your church now and forever. And all the church said, amen.